morning. Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you, I've, uh, I've been a Christian about oh, around half my life, and I realized, even as we had our service introduced this morning, that one of the hardest things is that it seems so natural to trust ourselves first, to start here, to trust our senses, to trust our heart, that so much in our world, especially the modern Western world, tells us, of course, you start with yourself, and I'm sure COVID has just made that even more so. You can't even trust another person's handshake or presence now, right? It's so natural to start with ourselves that if we try to believe in God or follow Christ, it seems like we're going to just add something on to where we've already started. Instead of trying to start brand new. It seems like we're going to just still work with our natural assumptions. Of course, you still trust your heart. You still trust all of these warnings, all these things you see and hear about what is right and good and true, what is the most basic reality. And then we're going to try to add on God as much as we can, take in Jesus' advice along with all sorts of other advice that we're inundated with. We, in effect, become polytheists. Maybe we wouldn't say it that way, but we act as if there are many gods to worship. We'll put Yahweh or God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, up there along with all sorts of other warnings and advice, philosophies of life, whatever you may have it. And it reminded me of a way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer described false and true repentance. He described false or sort of cheap repentance as, it's as if you're on a train going one way. You realize it's going the wrong direction, and so you start running backwards on the train. It's not going to be helpful. Can you imagine you're, going, you're taking a trip to New York City, you're on the train, you realize you're on the train to Boston, and you get up and you start running down the aisle? Our passage is trying to say that there is a whole new reality that has come in Christ. Do we really appreciate what is at stake? Do we know what it is to follow Christ to have come to the living God? Or is the difference between believer and non-believer small? It can be glossed over. We don't really need it, right? Politics are the same. Economics are the same. So we have this little Christian thing on the side, but it doesn't really define us. Now, that's a very, very small view of God and a small view of what we get to come to in him. Let me just read. If you caught that meditation, it's really, really uh, helpful for setting us up for this passage. You can put it back on the slide if you can get there, the, the meditation. The early Christians realized that in order to become the temple of the Holy Spirit, they must ascend to heaven where Christ has ascended. They realized also that this ascension was the very condition of their mission in the world, 
of their ministry to the world. For there in heaven, they were immersed in the new life of the kingdom. And when after this liturgy of ascension, they returned into the world, their faces reflected the light, the joy and peace of that kingdom. And they were truly its witnesses. In church today, we so often find we meet only the same old world, not Christ and his kingdom. We do not realize that we never get anywhere because we never leave any place behind us. Let's pray. Father, take us up into the heavenly places according to your promise. It would be a ridiculously boastful and prideful ask if it were not for Christ the one who descended so that we may ascend. What a wonderful God you are. May you speak by your word that we would know what is at stake, that we would see what we need to leave behind because of the great promises that we have in you. Show us your reality in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 12. Second half of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, I think, is the, the, the thesis statement of this book. He's done 11 chapters of lots of argument. He's building up to eventually coming to this huge uh, uh, motivation to say, therefore, looking to Jesus, do not, with your, do not let your, droop, your hands droop, do not let your knees be weak and lame, but press on, endure. And this second half of chapter 12 is the uh, additional sort of foundation of why we should press on. Realize where you have come. And I want to start with the positive and then get to what we're going to be saying no to. The positive, he says, you have come to what? Let's behold just the reality of where we have come. You have come. There's seven characteristics of this new reality that we get to behold, but I'm going to break it up into two, two general parts of access and community, this access that we have. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Why is that such a big deal? Well, Zion became a code word, if you will. It was the place where the temple by Solomon was originally built, and then it comes to symbolize not only the temple, Jerusalem, but also the people of God, the entire people of God. And so we read in Psalm 87, this is a very great depiction, on the holy mount stands the city he founded, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And then listen to how it's described. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Can you imagine thinking, you, you were born in the church. You were born in Zion from the heavenlies. That's what He's celebrating you are one of the chosen people. Hallelujah. You have come to the place that God dwells, that he even delights in. Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. 
You have come to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem. You have come second to, we're told, to God, the judge of all. Seems to be a little bit of a strange uh, description there in the middle of the passage. Why would he put it that way? Well, he put it that way because a few verses earlier, to face God, the judge, was terrifying. Why would we want to ever celebrate the fact that we're going to meet God, the judge? It seems to be emphasizing that if we have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, we can actually praise God as judge. He is just. He is the justifier of the one who is in Christ. If Jesus is the mediator, we no longer have to fear God as judge. So we can say we have come to God, the judge of all, because As he described Jesus in chapter 1, the little prologue to this whole book, it's also a little summary. Let me just remind you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is your middleman. That is your mediator. And if he's your mediator, he represents God to us, and he represents us to God. That's why we can come to the city of the living God, God the judge of all, because we have Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. And then, right after he says that, he says, and you have also come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Another kind of peculiar phrasing. He seems to be referencing the temple sacrifices that would literally sprinkle blood. You would sprinkle blood with the the animal that you have just sacrificed as a symbol of blood for blood. Sin deserves death. And so the sprinkling of the blood on the altar would show that your sins are forgiven. But what does the blood of Abel say? The blood of Abel was crying out from the ground when Cain killed him. Right? Back in Genesis 4. The blood of Abel is crying out for vengeance, for justice. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than that. The sprinkled blood of Jesus says not only there are no more sacrifices to be done, but that the justice that God still upholds welcomes you in to the righteous God's presence because we are covered by his blood. This is what we get to come to. This is the sort of access that we have. This is where we get to come to. But then it also describes a very interesting uh, community that we are a part of. So not only are we to behold this, this sort of new reality that we have access to, but we get to behold what we're a part of. And I want us to notice how the community is described. It's described as a heavenly community and a united community. Let's take heavenly first. This may sort of get lost with us, I think, 
seems, it seems bizarre, to say the least, to think that it matters at all that we come to innumerable or myriad of myriads angels in feastal gathering. Why would we care about that? Well, the feastal gathering tells us it's, it's panegyric. It's the celebration uh, that would have been done throughout Greco-Roman times. They are celebrating. They are, are partying, if you will. There's an angelic host that is surrounding the throne of God. And I've actually been able to uh, walk through Revelation this summer in Bible study, and it's really amazing how that book is trying to waken us up to the new reality and how it uses angels to describe reality in this way. And so it, it's using angels a lot of times to say either you have a sort of heavenly representative. So if you remember the letters to the churches in Revelation, it's letters to the angel of the church. It's almost like you have a kind of covenant representative in, in heaven. But more importantly, and this is true not just in the book of Revelation, but in other parts, what Jesus does on earth, when Jesus conquers and vanquishes death, it causes heaven also to be ruptured. So in chapter 12, he has this strange description. Jesus has conquered death. Now there's a battle in heaven, and the angels are defeating Satan. Why would he tell us that? He's trying to waken us up to this new reality that heaven and earth, all of reality, has changed in Christ. It's not just what we can see. That is not the most significant reality we have to deal with. We are a part. And this is why in our bulletins we're always referencing Revelations 4 and 5. Because we are joining the angels in worship. It's pretty wild. When we say, with the prayer that Jesus told us, that we want his kingdom to come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not just a hopeful wish that we toss out into the air with no real security. He already is king, seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven. We want that more and more now on earth. It is true already. The prayer is a prayer for the kingdom to come as it is already in heaven. That it would come now as we know it's going to come in the end of Revelation. Where that city of the living God is going to come. Come down and fill the world. I was reminded in trying to think about this and this idea that we are part of a, a, a new reality, almost like we've been to the mountaintop sort of thing. Uh, I was reminded, if you, if you guys remember the show The West Wing, this great political drama, a lot of people are sort of re-watching it on Netflix. There was a, uh, one episode that was interviewing people who actually were in the West Wing in previous administrations. Um, and I remember a comment that said something like, we all realized that working in the West Wing, working in the, the office of the President of the United States, that in one day, we were going to have more of an impact than all the other jobs we were going to have later combined. And so they, they described just pouring their heart into it and just a sense of, of exhilaration and thrill. 
And I thought, that's it's interesting. What a huge letdown it must be when the administration changes, right? And they, did, they admitted that, and they described, what a huge letdown to know that you have peaked, right? You have peaked. And actually, something very similar was told me, a guy who was the chaplain of the New England Patriots, he, was, he had this Bible study, you know, in the times when they were winning Super Bowls, and some of the press would ask him, how do you get these star athletes into a Bible study? Why do they care? And he said, they realize that if this is all there is, it's pretty lame. It's pretty lame. If they're peaking at 25, football career average is what, three and a half years? Then there must be, there must be something else. Our we don't have this letdown. We get to enjoy this peak of an experience, and we know that it's only going to get better. It's only, he's only going to be using the things in your life to prepare you for that enjoyment. To be a part of not only this heavenly community, but this united community. And did you notice a couple of descriptions of that community? One is called the Church of the Firstborn. Assembly of the firstborn. It should be church. I don't know why they did that. Just ecclesia. Church of the firstborn. Of the firstborn. That reminds us, I think, of places like Romans 8 where we are described as co-heirs with Christ. Think of ter in terms of inheritance. If you're in the will of your parents and you're going to get the inheritance of your parents, in that world, the firstborn son gets the bulk of the inheritance, we are told that the one who was by nature the firstborn son of the living God is giving to us his inheritance by grace. We are the church of the firstborn. That's our identity. That's who we are. Church of the firstborn who we are also coming to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Seems to be referencing the Old Testament saints, as well as those Christians who have died, the Old Testament saints were in chapter 11, who were described as through faith, they were commended as righteous, but they were waiting for Christ and the church to be perfect. They hadn't yet been perfected. And so he's saying now, because Christ has come, they have been made perfect in heaven. And being made perfect is something that we are promised in Christ, throughout the book of Hebrews, it's one of those words that keeps coming up. The same word that Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, is that word, it is perfected, is it accomplished, it is done. That's the sort of community we get to be a part of. We're joining the angels in feastal gathering. We're joining the church of the firstborn. We're joining the saints who have been made perfect. What could be more real than that? Why would we want to fall back to any other sort of reality, to any other sort of insights? Why would we trust the warnings or the advice of any other competing God? So I want to look at the sort of false reality that we are tempted to fall back into. For the Receivers of this letter, it seems to have been a temptation to fall back into what was a more safer 
way of life, to fall back into a Judaism that was more respected because it was more ancient. And so he's reminding them, why in the world would you fall back into a type of worship that saw God as terrifying, as unapproachable? If you notice that description at the first couple verses, God is not even mentioned. You have not come, now he's describing Sinai, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What kind of access do they have? They don't have any access. They don't want to be there. They are scattered and afraid because they are confronting God in His holiness. They are confronting God in His wrath. And He goes on and graciously provides ways for them to worship and ways for them to draw near to Him, still being that holy and terrifying God. But they continually fall away, They continually fall under his judgment, and yet, they still prefer that. Do you see how foolish that is? And before we cast stones at those silly Israelites, we do the same thing, right? Whenever whenever you start saying, how could they have done that back then, you need to stop, take a breath, and think, okay, wait, how am I like that? In the stories of Israel, we are not like David. We are like the Israelites who are afraid to face Goliath. And we need a better David. The law was a standard of performance that if they would fulfill, they would receive the inheritance of the land. We think that the performance gospel is better we, we have this inclination that we want to prefer it. Maybe because it seems more in our control. We don't have to ask God for things. We don't have to beg God for anything. We want to take control of it ourselves, and at least we can sort of measure ourselves by a certain standard. We listen to more warnings that seem to condemn us. If, God, if it's not God that's going to condemn us, it's someone else or some other standard that we're trying to live up to. And yet the deceitfulness and wickedness of sin is that it convinces us to want that still. We want it more. We act like that's what we should prefer. No, we need to see how crazy that is. To live up to some standard of what should be perfection, but we always want to bring it down to a level that we can kind of get close to. We need to see that for its foolishness. What is that for you? What is that performance-based standard that you let creep over your right shoulder as just bearing down on you? Is it your job? Is it your... There's so many ways. It's interesting going through Ecclesiastes. So many ways in which the vanity of this world can be oppressive. As uh, As our oldest... You know, is, is preteen. She's probably been there for a while, but I just am in, in denial. 
it just reminds me of my own middle school, high school day. I love middle school. I think eighth, I might have peaked in eighth grade, speaking of peaking early. I loved eighth grade. But when I think about the preteen angsty vanity of, of trying to be on the in crowd, trying to be cool, it is so ridiculous. So, so the, the children, the kids, the, sorry, you're not kids anymore, the, the middle school, high schoolers, if you could just tr give me the benefit of the doubt, trying to be cool in middle school or high school is just not worth the anxiety. It's not worth, nobody cares. Ten years later, nobody will remember you on the in crowd. Nobody cares. But that's what we do. We create some type of performance that we need to listen to. Why do we do that? Why do we listen to so many others instead of Jesus? We, we do kind of the opposite of Pascal's wager. We, we say, well, it's natural to, to invest in this world. I can control that. Who knows about the next? I'm going to let the dice roll on that one, and I'm going to invest now, not realizing that we have heard from heaven itself, that we have heard from the living God. It's not a wager in the darkness. We, don't we see all around us the fragility of this world? The fact that all of these idols that we try to make will never live up to their standard and to their promises and expectations? How silly it is, especially to you who are listening, to you who are in the church or at least listening in some capacity, to hear from heaven itself and then think, not that big a deal. And then yawn as if it's not that big a deal. This is all part of the thesis in chapter 12. Look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of your faith. Look to Jesus, the pioneer and finisher of your faith. Therefore, lift our drooping hands. Look to Jesus, you have not come to Sinai, you've come to Zion. Look to Jesus, and if we appreciate what is at stake in this reality, we will want to hear what he has to say. And so that's how this passage concludes, and I think is the main point of this passage, which is why I'm ending with it. Just as in previous sections in, in Hebrews, Hebrews is amazing for this dichotomy that I've noticed, this dichotomy of promises of unshakable assurance of what Christ has done and who you are because of that, coupled with the harshest warnings of probably any letter he does the same thing here. He says in verse 25, For if they, talking about the Israelites at Sinai and those who wandered throughout the wilderness, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warned from heaven. You see what he's saying there? Because we have this false notion, whether or not we've grown up in the church, it's just, all around us that the Old Testament was the scary, that's the doom and the darkness that we read about, and the New Testament is nice. 
light and easy and maybe cheaper, more superficial. It's really the opposite. On the grand scheme of things, it's the opposite. Jesus talks about hell a ton. We should be terrified, in a sense, of Jesus. We should be ter- there is a still a certain type of reverence. Did you catch that? The way he ends, what our worship should be, and he's talking about worship, that's a specific word. It's not the general worship that we do all things in worship. He's talking about a sort of temple worship. That, you would, that your worship would be acceptable in reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Quoting from Deuteronomy when they were wandering in the wilderness. For our God is a consuming fire. But what would this new type of reverence look like or feel like? I don't know if this is helpful. It kind of struck me. It, it, would, be, it would be like meeting someone like Mother Teresa, who is not terrifying in outward circumstances, right? You meet this sort of small uh, old lady. But there's still a type of reverence, I think, that you would have. It's a reverence of great mercy. It's the reverence that the woman showed when she brought in this expensive alabaster jar of ointment and spilled it to anoint Jesus. Or the woman who who is wiping Jesus with her tears, is is, is cleaning his feet with her tears because she's so in love but with reverence. She can't even look at it. It's a reverence. It's a reverence of great, great mercy. If we do not hold on to every word of that God, he's saying you're There's no way you're going to escape. What other hope do you want? The Old Testament was just set up. It was child's play compared to what's happening in Christ. We're told in Romans 3, it was out of God's divine forbearance that he had passed over former sins, but now in Christ, he has judged sin. We have seen it in its fullness. And he's our only hope. He is our only hope. How could we not want to listen? And so Hebrews pulls off of that passage in Haggai when they're rebuilding the temple and God is trying to encourage them to keep going, rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by foreign armies. And God says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And what he means is he's going to judge and he's going to rule the nations and he's going to fill the temple with the glory of all the nations, he says. But as we know, the temple never really met full expectations. They were still acting as if they were waiting for the temple to be completed in all its glory without the Roman power over them. And when Jesus comes, he says, I am the new temple. And then the The Christians start figuring it out. After the resurrection, they're like, oh, the temple's going global. You are the temple. When he says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, he is saying we are going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful that we have received it. Let us be grateful that we have come 
Did you notice that it's not future tense? You have not come to Sinai in the past. You have come. Present tense. He's talking to them now. He's talking to them because he wants them to endure now. Saying, you have come now to the church of the firstborn. To the myriads of angels in party mode. You have come to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. You have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, even by a global pandemic. God laughs at the things that we think will shake us. What an amazing thing to say in the face of COVID. There's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do we realize this is the most true reality? This is what is real. If you're not a Christian, if you're here or if you're listening, you need to see that heaven itself speaks through the Lord Jesus Christ. That we see God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's no other hope. You're going to meet judgment. You're going to meet destruction. You will never and can never live up to the standard of perfection and righteous. How foolish to think you could. Let your heart be softened to realize that. To get over the self-justification that we are all plagued by. If you are in Christ, then you still are being reminded every day, every hour, to remember who and where you have come. Stop being a polytheist. Stop being the, the ones who just take Jesus as one among many other gods that we want to trust. It's not safer. It's not more comfortable. It may feel like that in the moment, but why would you trust your feelings? Why would you trust your heart over the Lord God himself? Let's pray. God, you are the one true and living God. You are the one grand reality, the most pure being, the source of life and goodness. Open our hearts to know that, to trust that, convict us of the foolishness and the wickedness of trusting anything else, even ourselves, above you, Lord. We thank you for this day and for your word, we pray in Christ's name.